Okay, everyone, welcome to another episode of The Big Questions with Big John. Uh, we have a great episode today. Uh, continuing our conversations with the Libertarian uh, Party presidential uh, hopefuls uh, for pres uh, presidential hopefuls. I don't have to say for president again. That would be repetitive. Uh, today we have Dr. Charles Belay, who's joining us uh, to let us know a little bit more about himself, his campaign, uh, where he stands on the issues. Uh, so everyone, please welcome Dr. Charles Belay to the show. Big John, thank you very much for having me today. I much appreciate it. Oh, uh, always a pleasure, uh, sir. And um, so let's get started, uh, as Homer said at the beginning. Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. You're a medical doctor, is that correct? That is correct. I uh, practice otolaryngology, much easier to understand as ear, nose, and throat medicine. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, you, you had me wondering there because uh, being Greek, of course, I, I, I always try to uh, parse out the long medical uh, words. Otolaryngology, uh, sure. right? Is that right? <laughs> it's, a bit yeah. of, it's, a, it's a slight tongue twister. It's a big tongue twister, even for me. And I recognize the three words that are kind of mashed together in there. But uh, yeah, okay. So you're you're a near nose and throat doctor, uh, I, and your current practice is in New Orleans, correct? That 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 is correct. Yes. Right. Okay. So okay. So at, at some point we got to talk uh, some some good Creole cooking because I, I I love uh, uh, the food in New Orleans. Uh, always one of the things I do when I visit down there is stuff my face. I'm uh, you know. So uh, all right. So um, but okay. So uh, you're you're a medical doctor. Uh, obviously, uh, your early your early uh, beginnings. Uh, interested in science, uh, going to medical school. Actually, actually, that is not true. That oh, is okay. It, yeah, entirely untrue. So, so I grew up in New Orleans. Uh, well, actually in a suburb of New Orleans, but, um, but, uh, my, my grammar school, high school was actually, uh, grammar school in New Orleans, uh, in high school in New Orleans proper. Um, when I had finished, I did not have a necessarily a, a desire to go into medicine. I actually went into mass communications and from there worked sort of in the film industry for people um, in sort of a roundabout way. I'd worked for a television station and it was only through a friendship that I really thought that I had an aptitude for medicine, uh, mm -hmm. at which time I, I went back to school and, and from there it, it, we've been shooting off rockets with regards to practicing medicine. But, but it was not something I grew up thinking I was going to do. Absolutely oh, not. Oh, that's so interesting. Usually you find the opposite. You find usually that um, medicals, I, I always used to joke. Uh, so just for your trans transparency to you, uh, one of my degrees is in biology. So sure. uh, we always used to joke that, you know, uh, bio uh, you got your biology degree when you realized you couldn't <laughs> get into medical school, right? Like I, I yeah. never, I was, I knew I was never going to be a doctor, but it was interesting to me. We always used to say uh, organic chemistry, usually the second semester of organic chemistry is in my mind the great sifter of people who are serious about becoming doctors. You know, like see, see, I loved organic. If, if that, it, <laughs> there you go. It, then. <laughs> it was it was to the point where I I almost decided to become a chemist as opposed to a physician. Wow. Uh, okay. Uh, you know, uh, I've just found the logic behind it very. Uh, very. It was it was just something I, I really enjoyed a whole. That was lot. that was one of my toughest. I uh, I really had trouble visualizing the difference between. Um, uh, if a molecule binds from the left, it's poison. Yeah. If it binds from the right, it's a life-saving medicine. And, and right. that it, at some point, like other than just knowing the 
you know, the statement, you know, like sure. the, the, the concept, which is, you know, was, I, I had trouble with that. So, but, but anyway, like right. I said, um, and the other joke was uh, what happened to the kids who didn't get into me- medical school, they became psychologists. Um, <laughs> anyway, so enough, uh, we don't mean to crap on the psychologists, obviously, but yeah. okay. So, so that's interesting uh, because it's the opposite path. Like most, most kids growing up say, I want to be a doctor. And then they focus their entire life on that. You kind of went at it, uh, not backwards, but you you arrived at it differently, which was like you kind of started with entertainment, movies, films, uh, uh, things of that nature. And then all of a sudden you said, hey, I think I might be interested in being a doctor. You had an acquaintance. Okay, great. So that's certainly so. So you got your degree. Rather, you you became a doctor relatively late in life compared, say, to other doctors, right? That is correct. Yes. Right, right. So so I'm assuming. Tell me what what do you think might be a difference in how you approach medicine, if any? Well, I mean, so, so, you know, I, I would not want to disparage anyone who decided to do this from a young age because right. I mean, it, it, you know, I can't speak for anyone else for myself. I, I really had a life before I had another life. So I think I can appreciate it more and my rationale behind going into medicine. Um, I guess it gave me a different understanding of different walks of life. Mm. Um, I wasn't myopic in the sense of becoming simply a doctor. And that's pretty much what I focused on. And that's all my classes. And, and I didn't hang around with all of those persons, etc. I became a doctor after I had a life and just found an aptitude for science, I guess the best way mm-hmm. to put it. Um, nothing against those people, again, uh, uh, that, that chose this as a, as a career from the outset. I, I just found that perhaps it gave me an empathy uh, in, in a manner that has afforded me a, maybe an understanding in a better way, but I hate to use mm. the word better. I don't think that's fair to anyone. Um, but I think it gave me uh, the ability to empathize with different walks of life because I've sort of lived that life, so to speak. Mm. Uh, you know, I had, I had jobs prior to doing what I do for a living. I mean, and now I have, I mean, in my opinion, I have probably the best job in the world. I mean, where else do you go where someone comes in and doesn't know you and you have to explain what you have to do to them and they sign up and there you go. I mean, being a physician is, 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 is to this day, I think the most, uh, is probably the, the, the biggest, uh, compliment. I mean, it's the best profession in the world. Uh, right. you know, it just is. I mean, you know, yeah. Uh, and, and, and honestly, it's almost like you're talking about the way a convert say to any philosophy or religion or anything, uh, usually the people who love it the most appreciate it the most or the most ardent defendants of it are not the people who were born into it. Right. Uh, and it, that's not speaking to competence. It's just speaking to enthusiasm is right. the people who had to come at it after they had been through something else, you know, like yeah. you weren't indoctrinated yeah. to be a doctor. You truly chose to be a doctor and you chose to be a doctor as an adult, which is, which yeah. is slightly and, and actually, different. Yeah. I'm the, I'm the black sheep of the family in the sense that, that, my family are for the most part attorney. So, you know, I'm kind of the out, outcast, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that must be some kind of family dinner going on uh, <laughs> in that case. Uh, all right. So uh, that's very interesting the way you, be, you came to arrive at practicing medicine. So Charles, let me ask you this in terms of your, of your, where you are now trying to get the nomination uh, for, to be, to run as president for uh, the libertarian party, Yes, what sir. gets a doctor involved in politics like that? So, so you know, I've seen this groundswell growing over years. And this starts – so my practice moved from Texas to Louisiana in 2014. But around the time when I made the decision – so I had, I had trained in Houston and went to California for more training and then opened shop in Texas, in the Hill Country in Texas, where I was there for about seven years, eight years um, – 
around that time, there was, or the year prior to me departing, there was a government shutdown three times, right? So, um, so, and I was in a community that's primarily Medicare, okay? Um, when the government shuts down, CMS, uh, the payer for Medicare, has to hold claims for X period of time. Now, the government shut down that year three times. So, there were approximately six months. There may have been, give or take, a few weeks here or there where you're basically, you will receive payment for services that you've rendered, but it takes time. Now, all the while the, the clock's ticking, the bills would need to be paid. And you have to, so then you have to go to the local bank and ask for a loan, which is, which you have to, they draw interest on loans. And so, but when the government ultimately pays you, you are basically left with, uh, you know, you're still, you're whatever at the year, 5% short, right? right. So a after three times, I finally said, you know, I really can't continue with this government uncertainty. And, and, you know, it was painful to move because I really loved my patients. I was in a smaller community where you, we, we were well thought of and we, we had a large draw from a large you know area, but, uh, and you get to see these persons at the, at the, at the bank, you saw them at the church, you saw them at the grocery store, you saw them everywhere. Right. Um, but but it was either move back home to New Orleans where I know everyone, have family, friends, cousins, etc., or move down towards San Antonio at the time. And I chose to come back home just because I really didn't see anyone. And and honestly, I, I still remember the day when I had a conversation with someone of what really matters. You know, the the, the gist of the conversation was just to paraphrase: this this person had everything you could want in life, big house, the cars, the, the you know, but he didn't have family. And so at the time, I was out in the hill country. And I really didn't see brothers and I didn't see mom and dad, et cetera. So I said, you know, this makes more sense just to move back. Right. And that's kind of all it, all it came. It, that's how it came about. Should the government not have closed down those, those three times? And should the government have been on stable footing? Perhaps I would have chosen a different path, but that's the circumstances. Right. So it was an economic hardship brought about by, by government incompetence let's say for, for the most part yeah yeah I mean, that 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 chose you to that led you to choose to to move your practice where you were thriving right. to uh, for just like a lot of businesses did for various reasons uh, right. both during the pandemic and at other points during you're saying so um okay so let me ask you though how did that experience specifically drive you to the libertarian party well, that that specific instance did not. Okay. Okay. So, so I mean, so I, so, so I have been for the for the my, for the most part, my adult life, pretty much independent. I mean, I listen to all walks of life. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't care race, creed, etc. I mean, if you if you can back up what it is that he or she is saying, then I'll listen, and mm -hmm. if it makes sense, then I'll then I then I'll vote for you. Um, um, I'm not one to pull the trigger based upon one's party affiliation. I've never have, but what drew me to libertarian, it was actually last year when there was an ad and I don't know exactly who took out the, the ad specifically or who drew it up. It was a libertarian party ad mm -hmm. that basically showed on one side, there's a Democrat and on one side, there's a Republican. <laughs> and, and then there's actually a middle bound, you know, there's, there's boundaries and it shows this is where they are. They were, but in the middle, it basically is like the ethos of it was that these are the, these are the, these, these is, this is sort of the, uh, the overall beliefs that we that we put forth, and I was like, wait a minute, I kind of fit into this whole group. Hmm. It began to make make sense, and then you start to read more about it and just listen to, to people, and you listen to podcasts, and you listen to you know read, etc. And it begins to make sense, and so you know, trying to align with someone, this makes sense to me. Um, hmm. uh, there was not something back in 2014 that drew me to this party. No, I mean, I, if anything, I was I was highly independent, and I didn't really like 
either of the two major parties, just because um, it doesn't matter who was in power. Um, working as a physician uh, in my adult life, it was still uncertain because right. I mean, Congress as it changes, um, you know, it was it, it was just there was too much discord amongst the two parties to to make any you know, sound reasoning for me to understand. I mean, it's just, right. uh, you know, I, I was focused on medicine, not, not anything pol political, but, but, but I did have to suffer the consequences of those decisions. Right. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. The reason I ask is because I ask all my guests this question, you know, which is um, how did you, because very few people out of the gate are libertarians, you know, I, right. I, I, you know, so I love hearing how people arrived at the philosophy of libertarianism, of individualism, right. Um, you know, it's really funny, you know, I'm from New York, I'm from the East Coast, I'm, I'm the exception on the East from in terms of East Coast libertarians, right? Because typically, you will find libertarians on the East Coast, their, their roots, their starting points tend to be from the Democrat, they come at libertarianism from from the left from the status right. left, where if you if you look at some of the uh, southern states, and perhaps, you know, the, the, the Midwest, and, and, you know, the middle part of the country, the, you sure. know, people tend to arrive at their libertarianism from the right, you know, that, right. that, you know, they started out say being Republicans and then they'll move there. So it's very interesting to always ask someone like, what was it that, that kind of steered you towards the, the libertarian, either the political libertarian party or the libertarian philosophy uh, of trying to, you know, promote individual rights. Now, having said all that, uh, I'm sure that as, as you started to, to ruminate about like, Hey, uh, I saw this ad, which by the way, you're the first person to ever admit being influenced by one of those ads. I, and, uh, and I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad because you always see the memes and you wonder like, are we preaching to the converted? You know, do these only apply to people who are already libertarians or, uh, are other folks so stuck in their duopoly that they just brush that aside, you know? Uh, right. so again, it's kind of funny that you actually saw an ad and, and it made sense to you and you went like, Oh wait, you know, this, this, they might be talking about me type of thing. So uh, that, that's interesting as well, that you were actually influenced by one of these memes. So well, I, well, I, I, know, I, the other thing is, is that, you know, we hear this all the time. There's, it doesn't matter if, and, and most of my friends, I mean, I, I keep a, a whole host of friends from various backgrounds and various ideologies, religious, political, right. etc. And no matter if you're a physician that's a Democrat or a Republican, I don't know many, you know, physicians that are libertarians. I just don't. Um, they know I am now, but uh, but um, they but it does. They're they're not happy with the state of medicine right now. Um, and and the common denominator is is everyone is so busy working that no one stands up for what it is they believe. They don't get into politics because they either don't have time or they perhaps don't have a desire. I think it's probably a little bit of both. Uh, they'd rather carry out what they do with medicine as opposed to, you know, spend time going to to the state capitol and arguing their points or sitting on committees or, mm. or or getting involved nationally. And so, you know, at some point you just have to say, listen, enough's enough. I mean, I, I can take a lot, but at some point what's right and what's wrong. And I see medicine changing in a way that is actually kind of frightening. And that's just in my in my infantile life of doing medicine or practicing medicine on my own since around 2007, it's changed drastically. I mean, just by, by leaps and bounds. Um, I mean, some of these for good, and that has to do more with technology, but some of these, when it comes to the humanity behind medicine for the worse, yeah. you know, and so, uh, so I, expand on that a little bit. Cause that's interesting. So well, um, well, how, how is it, how, uh, 
acknowledging what you just said, which is, hey, in terms of the technology, in terms of our, the tool set available to the physician, generally speaking, right. those are getting better, right? Like, I, Absolutely. Uh, right. I mean, but, you, you, you'll, you'll see various sort of uh, uh, therapies, right? Injectables, immunotherapies. I mean, that, I've literally witnessed miracles um, that you would never have seen five years ago, six years ago. We have tools in surgery that you can use that greatly facilitate surgical intervention. I mean, right. we've gone from, from, you know, from massive morbidity, not mortality, but morbidity uh, by instrumentation and the technologies to be able to make things outpatient procedures. I mean, it's fascinating. At the same time, the humanity has changed in that, in that you have now computer systems, and while they are uh, wonderful because you can document and actually read what someone writes. I mean, instead of someone spending time looking at the patient, holding their hand and empathizing with he or she, you're worried about what's happening on a computer interface so that you can input records that go to God knows where. So one of the biggest complaints of physicians is are they, they feel like scribes now as opposed to actual physicians, mm. you know, I mean, and that's what I mean by it's lost some of the humanity behind it. And I think a lot of people are, are discouraged because of that. Yeah, and and uh, obviously we could all relate to that probably in our own right. um, interactions with physicians. You know, I mean, right. Uh, right. Uh, I have a, a mother who's uh, 80, 83. So, I mean, uh, as you can imagine, the, the, the visits to the doctor are more frequent sure. and, you know. And um, she had a very rough time when her insurance forced her to, to like, find a new physician. Right. And um, – she had a very rough time, not necessarily with the treatment, but to your point, you know, she wants to be talked to. She wants to be, um, she wants to have her fears addressed. She wants to be able to, and we joked earlier, she wants her physician to be part psychologist, part bartender, where he'll take five minutes to listen to her complaints to get to, you know, and right. she just did not have that in her new physician. And it was very rough for her at that age, you know, and it had nothing to do with cost in the sense that, or competency even, it was just right. to your point, the beds, what we, what used to be called the bedside manner, uh, right. or to your point, the empathy now, uh, do you feel that that lack of empathy is strictly due to technical reasons, meaning, um, insurance compliance, uh, computers, uh, because there's so much more that you can treat effectively, there's much more for you to, as a physician, keep up on and, and, and you're getting more patients through the door. Do you feel it's more like that or do you feel it's a general shift? I think it's a general shift. I mean, it's a general uh, shift. And, and, and I mean, the, the technology is great. Um, there are some things where like you have to input records that, that are that that take your time away. But it's also a general shift because, for instance, it's a time issue. I mean, you have X number of 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 minutes to see X number of patients uh, in order to, I mean, in, in order to actually earn a living. Now, I now work for Louisiana Children's Medical Center, which is a godsend for me because I can practice medicine the way I want. Because when I had moved back to New Orleans, I worked on my own. Um, I went from super busy to I didn't know anybody around here. I didn't train here. So, I mean, I was, I was, I was the new guy on the block. Um, and I was to the point of actually moving back to Texas because we were just it was just at some point, it was just like, gosh, when are we ever going to get busy? To which uh, LCMC basically bought our practice. And sent, so now I can practice the way I so choose, which is really a godsend. But even with that, there are so many persons you need to see in X number of, of you know, slots in order for this clinic to actually even function, right? When I, was, when I had this practice and, and I was on my own, you know, there was a certain percentage of, of what it is that you put forth in collections 
that you that that it all went to administrative costs. It went to uh, clearing houses. It went to I mean, so the amount of money you were earning on on every on any dollar requested for what you your or payment due was a fraction. I mean, you were getting you know ten percent up to thirty percent, but I think it was like ten percent at sometimes. Mm. Uh, and so you know, so so medicines change in those ways, being non-human because you you don't necessarily have the time necessarily. Um, I think I think there are a few other things associated with that. You don't have necessarily the, it's not a career choice that many people choose to do as a calling. Uh, mm. It's a job. It's become more of a nine to five. It used to be, you'd be up in the morning, two o'clock operating because somebody came in with say a gallbladder that was hot. I mean, I remember this as a resident. Now it's pushed off to the morning, perhaps. Um, some of that has to do with financial probably because the government no longer affords anyone any, any extra fees associated with emergency type situations it's, it's, it's it's not just one singular thing i think i think there's a, a myriad of things that have become i'll give you the biggest for instance which and this is this is the was the eye opener to me when i started in texas when you were an internal medicine physician or a family practice doctor you would have a group of patients and those patients were your patients and uh, but in order to maintain privileges at a hospital you would have to have x number of days on call so if you had someone who came into the hospital at night and and say they were they were they had there was no pay they had no they had no insurance they had nothing you would have to stay up all night and you would have to take care of them um only to have to go around the next morning at you know seven eight o'clock start to practice and work through the day right after a while, these persons, internal medicine or family practice doctors, just got fed up and said, listen, we can't do it. And so therefore, here, here, here in comes the hospitalist, right? Um, so now the hospitalist sees you. And John, I've known you for you know the past 10 years. And I know every three months you get a little chest pain. We've worked it up before. You have some reflux. That's not, you know, that it's nothing to really be excited about. You show up at the hospital. The internist meets you for the first time. Now you have an echocardiogram. Now you have an EKG. Right. Now you have, I mean, you have everything known to mankind. And the cost is now just insurmountable compared to what could have taken place should the same person who's known you for many years um, have seen you. Right. So, I mean, right. so in many, that, so in many ways, medicine has changed along those lines, mm. um, you know? Um, and so, so, you know, that's just been my experience with it. Um, yeah. it's, you know, it's the greatest job in the world, but, but there are some things that need to change. Um, yeah, there is, there is that, like you said, I do, I've noticed that dichotomy as well, like medical, medical care technology, the science of it is, is progressing. I don't think people appreciate how much medical technology has advanced and at what a rapid pace, you know, I think it's true. What's that rule of thumb? We've had more progress in the last 50 years than recorded history up until 50 years ago in terms of medical right. advancement or, or something in that scale, which is, you know, and people don't appreciate that. And I think there's a lot of hysteria that we could talk about later uh, about certain aspects of medicine and science. And as a physician I, and as a libertarian, I think it would be great asking you about that. Okay. Yes, sir. Good. Let's uh, now move on to talk a little bit more about your presidential run per se. When did sure. you decide to run uh, to get the nomination of the LP for 2024 presidential uh, nomination? It took place with a person who uh, is a staunch, staunch Democrat at a restaurant in New Orleans. Uh, wow. We were, we were arguing points of what's, what we're kind of sort of tired of. Um, and um, at that point, we just said, you know, enough's enough. Um, let's see what a man who really has has nothing to do with politics can can do. Um, 
And, um, and he is in media, so he couldn't do anything. Um, you know, every, every moment of time mentioning his name would actually be afforded to X number of candidates. So he said, you know, I have to graciously bow out of doing anything like this. But at the same time, I said, you know what, I'm gonna stick to this and see where this goes, because I do think one man can make a difference. Hmm. And if I can do anything in this world is to get people to listen to their conscience and explore their, their explore what candidates perform before they pull the trigger in, in you know, when they go to vote, because uh, I think too often we have become sheep and either pull a red or a blue lever while all the while not necessarily realizing what you're getting into, um, right. you know, uh, and I don't, you know, it doesn't matter who I see on a day-to-day basis, whether the person leans left or right, they still have a lot of complaints currently with society uh, and how they don't feel like the small man is being taken care of. Right. Uh, right. And that's what drew me into this. That's, that's, that's a good, that's a good way of stating that. Um, because again, uh, I love to understand how people came to where they are, especially when it comes to the Libertarian Party. Okay, so now you, you're running basically, raise awareness, make people stop and think about what they're doing on, a, you know, so they're not just, as you said, sheep following the herd. Uh, let me ask you this. If you were to describe your Libertarianism as, uh, you know, on, you know, Libertarians, the, the old joke is uh, the only thing two Libertarians, if you put them in a room, will agree on is that the other one is not a real Libertarian. So uh, how would you describe your libertarianism uh, philosophically? So, so, so I, I know I lean more conservative uh, despite being brought up in New Orleans. Um, so you know, we're taught down here to get along with everyone. It's sort of like a gumbo, right? Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, it, uh, it, I would describe New Orleans as a city that is sort of like – it should be like uh, uh, described as a libertarian city with the exception of, of much of the sort of democratic principles. Uh, uh, social services, et cetera, because everyone seems to get along, right? Mm. Uh, I describe myself more conservative, though, because that's I think that's just the way I was brought up. Um, I was taught that there's nothing sort of, nobody, no one in this world owes you a thing. You have to earn these things. And I don't believe that one should expect anything from anyone else or the government or what have you. Uh, my folks, parents have taught me that education is the only thing that someone can't take away from you. Uh, and so con- consequently, they, su- they suffered and, they, and they, they didn't do many things that other people did to put me through good schools. And I did go to private schools here in New Orleans. Uh, and so consequently, I understand the value of an education, but it's also taught me that you're going to do more for someone to teach them to work than you are by giving them something. And so I don't believe, uh, you know, I, I would never deny a child or someone who's handicapped or, or someone who really doesn't have the means to go about and work and, and, to, and, and to better their life. I would not deny them really anything. But I don't believe that people who have that ability should be given things simply because they don't want to do it or they find means to, 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 to prove that they are somehow unwilling. Or, or the, as a physician, you see a lot of people come in and asking for disability for things that, you know, darn, doggone good and well are not dis- disabilities, right? Uh, and, and so I'm just like, this is a little silly because you're a grown person that is trying to game the system and why are we all paying for this? It doesn't, it doesn't really resonate too well with me. So – it, it sounds to me like I wouldn't consider you an anarchist or an ANCAP or anything like that, because uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you wouldn't advocate for no government at all, would you? No, I mean, I think there needs to be some. I mean, I think I think you have to maintain a civil society. You have to have law and order. Um, I don't believe in big government. I, I, don't, I think 
government's good about destroying things. It's good mm-hmm. at war, but it's not it's not good at fixing medicine. <laughs> Right. I mean, uh, I mean, I I think you have to have um, I I think you have to probably have some means to make sure that there is a moral code that goes through society. Not that government is the way to think about this, because I don't think it has necessarily shown that it can effectively do that in all walks of life. Uh, But occasionally you need that to rectify some wrongs, I would imagine. Um, I mean, I, I do believe in minimal government. I don't think you need to have an intrusive government. I think there just needs to be law and order, but at the same time, I don't think that uh, our 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 population, as it stands, um, uh, has the same moral code. <laughs> right, right, and and so, just expand out a little further. Assuming there is a moral code that we all could agree to, even the basics, you know, like um, don't take my stuff, leave me take, alone, leave me alone, <laughs> don't take my stuff, don't kill me, don't hurt me, right? Exactly, like just the basic stuff. How how would you go about? If it's a code, how would you go about enforcing something like a moral code? Well, well, I mean, I think there needs to be a place for each government entity. It shouldn't be – I mean, like I have have a lot of friends and acquaintances who are police officers. Right now, Mm. I would be frightened to be a police officer because a police officer isn't someone who simply is there to, you know, arrest violent criminals. I mean, they have to be psychologists these days. Yes. You're asking these persons to do things that are far beyond what it is that they've trained to do. And I don't think that's fair, nor should nor should they have to do these sorts of things. So, I mean, so what I, what I mean by minimal government is I think there's a place for the government. Sure, let's protect our citizens. Let's make sure that if I'm walking down the street and someone wants to come across me, that that particular individual is locked up or, or don't, you know, we take care of them many, whatever way is sees fit by society. But don't come after me if I'm, you know, walking down the street and drinking a beer, right? I mean, right. we do that. We do that in New Orleans, by you the way. You do that. But you do you, that in occasion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, look, I'm from the Bronx. I mean, if there's always a corner bodega, and you know, you're 40 and and the whole nine yards. So I I can appreciate right. walking with an uh, open bottle. Okay, why don't we do this? We're at the point. Let me ask you now directly to some issues uh, that sure. I, I I was able to gather your your policy position. So let's start out with. Uh, in terms of the treasury, you have three major points uh, that I was able to gather on this, which is uh, you want to have uh, implemented debt strategy, fiscal responsibility amendment, and expenditure accountability. Now, uh, I think those are fairly clear on their own, but let me ask you this. When you say a fiscal responsibility amendment, amendment, uh, talk to me about that. What do you mean by that? So, so if you so I made a graft. I did this, and I think this uh, is. Uh, it looks at debt GDP ratio since Ronald Reagan took office. Our our debt to GDP ratio has been growing by leaps and bounds, right? So, um, and I understand everybody could read the history. Sure, we basically got rid of the gold. You know, post World War II, we were we were everything was based around the dollar, bread and sound agreement, and then basically Nixon came along and ixnade that, and what seventy one it was, and then the gold standard went away, and then basically come the end of the Carter administration towards Reagan, we've basically now then begun to spend more when it comes down. To the military, et cetera, in this country. And the debt to GDP ratio, regardless of who's in Congress or who's a president, has has gone by leaps and bounds. So I do think, I mean, if I had to pick one thing that when you're looking at policy in the United States that is going to be detrimental to the overall survivability of this country, it's debt. I mean, right now we're, what, 20, what $34 trillion in debt? Now, I'm no economist. I mean, uh, if I was ever afforded the opportunity to get anywhere close to the White House, you'd have to call the best people for this job in and say, please give me some ideas. 
is how to fix it. But it seems like with states or states should get together and there has to be some means to to rein in this craziness. We can't just keep printing money as if it's just free because it's not. I mean, ultimately, the, the smaller guy, the middle class guy, the poor people are the ones that are going to get hurt. They're going to get stuck with this debt. They can't afford right. inflation. I mean, right, inflation, right. It, you know, jobs just don't your, your pay does not keep up with what it costs. Right. So it was interesting that uh, and maybe I'm just being picky like this, but I noticed it wasn't a, a balanced budget amendment that you referenced. It wasn't like a spending amendment. It was a fiscal responsibility amendment. Does that mean you would you would advocate a balance of uh, adjusting the levers towards some sort of ratio that was acceptable? For example, uh, a debt to DG, uh, GDP ratio, whatever that final number is, say thirty percent, or because that now it's correct. over. Now it's over a hundred percent, right? So there's there's uh, I think it's over a hundred percent. The last debt, I, the last I've read, the answer is yes to that. I want to yeah. say it's like 115 percent, something right. crazy. And yeah. we have to remember that a lot of European nations, the EU, I mean, as as horrible as a socialist uh, nightmare as that is. Um, it put many countries under austerity because their GDP right. ratio was roughly what ours is now. Uh, right. I think I think Greece was went under that. Italy was under that. Right. So when you look at that and you look at the U.S., the only reason we haven't collapsed like that into austerity is just the sheer magnitude of how big our economy is. Right. So. Right. So. So you're more along the lines of saying, like, hey, let's pass an amendment that says by hook or by crook. The debt to GDP ratio can't exceed X. And then X is going to be something that you're going to hire the best economists, the uh, free market economists in the world to figure out. Right. That is, that is. I mean, you'd have to put something in there to say, hey, look, in, in the event of, you know, some catastrophe, OK, things need to change. But 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 yes, I mean, to answer your question directly, yes, I think there has to be some control. I mean, if you don't have the money, you can't or you shouldn't spend it. Right. But you just keep printing, printing, printing. I mean, at what at what point are we going to say, wow, we're in trouble? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, obviously, <laughs> that point hasn't come yet for a lot of people, because I also think it's a matter of education. People don't understand right. these things. They don't understand right. that printing money is the reason why your dollar is devalued. It's purchasing power right. is down. It's it's the reason inflation increases. You know, uh, right. I love this dichotomy that it was either Biden or Trump that gave us inflation. No, it's the past 50, 60 years of this sort of reckless spending. Um, so, so, okay, great. Uh, let's move on to the second set of things that you have sure. here. You say redefining the tax blueprint and fostering domestic prosperity. Uh, and there you have tax code reform, you know, and I sure. think if anything, you would have libertarians who would tell you the, why reform uh, theft to begin with, right? Like, um, <laughs> uh, you know, so, you know, the, sure. you either stop it or you don't. And those are the more right. hardcore guys. But let's assume that you're part of the like minarchist uh you know, uh, minimalist government type of thing. And you're saying, okay, we can't get our own. So what would that mean for you? Like say quickly, would that be a flat tax? Would that be? So I like the whole flat tax, but, but I mean, I don't think, so I don't think libertarians are going to draw. I mean, this is this, my personal opinion. I think I've always thought a flat tax was the fairest, right? Mm -hmm. Um, if you, if you want to spend money, spend money. If you want to be a spendthrift, be a spendthrift. If you want to save, be a miser and that's fine. Right. Uh, why should you be helped? I mean, but then I understand the argument. Uh, I, I did understand the argument that there are um, there are uh, people that dis disagree, and I think you ha I think a, a bad leader is someone who who forms an opinion and doesn't listen to other people, and so I I can understand where they come from, 
when they are saying, hey, look, this is not necessarily something that's fair to everyone. So, you know, my my justification for writing what I wrote where, all right, let's put a ten, uh, and these numbers are, are arbitrary, right? I'm, not, I'm right. no economist, okay? I'm a physician. But 10%, let's just say, let's leave our taxes a flat 10%. Let's keep the IRS out of our business, right? Anyone try to get in touch with an IRS agent, good luck. You can't get them on the phone. Let's keep it simple. Everyone pays 10%, okay? If you're, if you're below a certain income, then just don't pay tax. But we still have a fair tax. And that fair tax was, I mean, Gary Johnson did it in 2016, or at least he, he put it out there. And I thought it was pretty smart. I mean, I really did. Uh, that's something that you can adjust based upon the needs of the country. If it really right. came about, uh, I think it's fair in the sense that you can you can exclude certain items, food, uh, healthcare, etc. Take it away so that you know some persons in the society aren't paying anything, right? But at the same time, I, you know, as as someone who would uh, who would look at this and saying, if you want to go spend all your money and on some fanciness, by all means, go do it. And, uh, on the other hand, if you want to save, save your money and put it in the bank and for, for a rainy day. And, and, and as it stands right now, I think if you are a, a very wealthy individual or you have someone that has the means to know a tax attorney or can, can hire tax attorneys, you have a much better chance of beating the system, so to speak. So I don't think right. it's fair. You know, I, I, you shouldn't be able to say, hey, look, I, I have 20 million bucks. Let's go put it into a, uh, a into a portion of the city of New Orleans where uh, where where if I leave the money in for a 10 year period of time, I get taxed on none of the the, the capital gains. Now, I just don't think that's fair. You know, I mean, um, um, everyone should have to pay their part and you shouldn't have to pay your part based upon where you are, or how much you can game the system. OK, so so you're not. Like for a radical solution, which is like get rid of taxation or uh, just re you're you're more for reforming the existing system to make it, as you're saying, more equitable for everybody. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I okay. I, I I don't think you're going to draw. I mean, like my thing about libertarianism is that uh, people look sometimes, in my opinion, look at libertarians as sometimes on the fringe. But I think this is a really a mainstream party. People just haven't come to realize that yet. I mean, we align with most people's values, but sometimes if you go out and you begin to uh, you know, uh, call for, for things that just really will not be uh, equitable to entire society, you'll be looked at with disdain. I mean, I, I think this right. party really has a lot to gain, particularly this election cycle, because most people, if they really get down to reading about this, believe in most of these values and they're tired of what's going on right now. Yeah. And I think most polls kind of bear that out. You know, like if you right. were to ask people issue questions after the tally, you would find out that something like the largest identifiable, identifiable block, it's some at like 28%, 29%. Is libertarian, right. but right. why don't we see 28, 29% of the people go for libertarian candidates? There's a disconnect. There's a messaging. Part of it is, is I think, and I've talked about this, I think the Libertarian Party shoots itself in the foot a lot. Like right. uh, in our defense of individualism, in our defense of free speech, it's a conundrum because we're, you're almost bound to tolerate any opinion and you're bound to tolerate any character that says I'm a libertarian. Right. Um, 
but at the same time, is that the image you want to present as a as a private organization to other people? I mean, so 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 if I'm a soccer mom and I, I'm worried about my what am I going to be able to you know put on the table for my children at night? I want them to go to decent schools. I want to clothe them. I want to maybe take a vacation here and there. I mean, and then you hear a radical idea where you're like, hey, look, we're going to somehow change society. And by the way, trust me. Uh, because we're not necessarily doing this on any large scale anywhere around the country, you begin to look like a, a really a fringe. And, and I right. can understand where this comes across to people that have lives that are not willing to throw um, all of their faith in someone based upon simply faith. I mean, right. there has to be some example by which you can give them. Um, and so to do anything too fast, too quick, um, I think is dangerous um, in the sense that you're going to alienate a lot of people. Right. Uh, yeah, you know, that, I, I can I can believe what I believe, but it doesn't mean mean I'm going to I'm going to somehow sway anyone else's opinion unless I can give them some rational means by which to do so. Right, right. You're trying to persuade people that it's it's a it's a it's a gradual move away from the duopoly, so to speak. It's a gradual move right. to to these to these new sort of ideas uh, that you may have. Uh, uh, the last thing on your uh, uh, domestic uh, prosperity front. Uh, you said uh, you want to prioritize free market principles over tariffs. Um, and on on its face, I agree 100% with that. My question to you is, if you were to ask me, I thought we had won the battle on tariffs years ago, that this was not necessarily even a libertarian position. Even the Republicans, for example, had initially posted, like, posited that tar tariffs are just counterproductive Sure. Um, that trade uh, trade deficits aren't really necessarily bad. You know, there's that old joke that says, you know, like I have a trade deficit of 100 percent with my grocery store. Right. I, I buy everything from them. They never buy anything from me. Right. So I have right. a, I run a trade deficit with my grocery store. That's not a bad thing. Right. We're both getting right. what we want out of the deal. So would you say that you are against tariffs entirely or do you think they have a place? No, so I think I think there's probably a place, and I'll give. You, I mean, I'm Louisiana, so I'll give you a for instance, right? So sure. shrimp. Okay, let's just say seafood, the seafood industry, right? I, I mean, I have patients that are shrimpers, and they're getting killed right now. The cost of fuel uh, keeps them from going out catching their, you know, getting uh, catching shrimp. Um, the cost of imported shrimp are killing them as well. So, I want. I think it was Senator Kennedy. Um, no, it's not. Excuse me. I'm thinking of uh, uh, Senator Cassidy. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. uh, um, he. Uh, the World Trade Trade Organization has, has a means by which you can rectify situations when they're when they're when there's basically dumping, uh, and they've you know found this to be true with regards to the shrimp industry. But the unfortunate uh, thing is that the, the the monies go back to the treasury, not to the people that really need it the most, right? So so I mean so there has to be some so so yeah sure we're all part of the World Trade Organization now, but at the same time there has to be some fair and equitable means to rectify situations in this country when there is such thing as dumping, and it needs to actually go to the people that get dumped on, not back to the government. And um, I mean, we see it in that industry. I mean, there's, you know, pick an industry, depending on what part of the country you live in. But I don't think it's fair necessarily when uh, when you get dumped on and you can't compete simply because the economic cost in Ecuador may be totally different than South Louisiana. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, your next set of uh, issues are around revitalizing federal administration. Now, these you break into fortifying essential services, redefining government roles, and private sector collaboration. I think those all we can agree with. 
the one thing I have highlighted is you made the statement, reinforce foundational services, minimizing bureaucracy. What are foundational services in that definition? Well, I mean, I think there's a bit of redundancy throughout all of government right now. You have to look at all of these agencies and figure out where is the redundancy there. And basically, it needs to be cut. You shouldn't have, you know, three different organizations doing the same exact thing, particularly with technology the way it is. We're now, we're now, you know, at the touch of a button. Uh, one can get the information that one needs without having to, you know, wait in the mail for weeks on end, et cetera, to make decisions. I mean, I think there's there's a lot of waste in government. I think there should be a means by which if you are to work for the government, there has to be a, a means to rectify persons who aren't doing their job. I mean, mm-hmm. the old joke at the Veterans Administration was someone wasn't doing their job. You'd basically just give them a lateral move and give them, you know, give them, you know, this person was the best employee that we've had. And by the way, let's move them along and let's go on to the next department. Right. Uh, there was no way to actually fix that situation. I think we need to streamline the government and make it work for us uh, as opposed to the other way around. Right. 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 OK. So it's basically uh, rather than saying foundational services, you're saying let's get rid of redundancy. Uh, let's make it more efficient. That is correct. So, however, I'm going to throw another curveball at you. I hope you don't mind. No, of uh, course not. So, for example, Milton Friedman said out of all the federal agencies, the the ones that he thought were necessary, he could count on one hand. And that would be like Department of Defense, uh, Department Department of State, uh, Justice, you know. But everything else he would get rid of. Department of Education, Department of the Interior, Department of the Exterior, blah, 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 all the way down the line. Do you kind of agree with that notion? And if you do, what would be like the agencies you would keep? Like, for example, the FDA. Should the FDA uh, stay in place? I think so. I mean, I would would have to go down. You'd have to go line item and say, listen, how how useful is this in our society and whether or not can we get rid of it or yes or no, right? So to tell you that doing what I do for a living, I think is – that is – for me, it just I can't. I mean, it's just not what I know. You'd have to literally look at this agency and say, well, gee whiz, the Department of Education, do I agree with it? In many ways, no. Um, um, but at the same time, you know, what is it that we truly need in this organization to make this, this country function better? Um, and I don't think that persons, unless you've been working in a government federal administrative position for quite some time, and particularly in those particular organizations, or have direct uh, – uh, access to what it is that many of these do that you can honestly come out here and say, I'm going to get rid of them. I mean, that sounds really nice, but are you mm-hmm. really going to do it? I mean, if I'm going to tell you I'm going to do something, I'm sure as heck going to try to do it. Right. But if I, but if I don't know, I mean, it's like asking me, uh, Hey, look, uh, you're doing a neck surgery on that guy. And by the way, let's go fix his spine. No, I'm going to call a spine surgeon. I'm going to say, listen, what do you know about this and how do we fix this? And what's the best way to do it? Right. Okay. I mean, and so, you know, and so I do think this government is too big. I mean, to, to clarify this, my government's too big. I mean, absolutely. Do we have too many redundant services? Yes. Are there too many persons on the dole from the federal government? Absolutely. 100%. Yes. Which ones do we need to cut? You need to go down there and say, all right, we don't need this. We don't need this. We don't need this. And sure, unfortunately, there are going to be some people that are going to be unemployed, but that's not the role of the public is to make sure that we keep all these people employed. Right. The government, uh, you know, that. It's just where I stand. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, tell you that I'm going to to get rid of everyone because you'd have to look at all of this first and make an educated decision. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, again, I think it was Milton Friedman. He said, as a compromise, he would have loved to see the FDA go back to its original role, which was not to regulate uh, pharmaceuticals, but rather to provide an opinion on whether or not they posed a danger. For example, they would rule on safety 
not efficacy. Would you agree to something like that, specifically to I mean, the FDA? Well, I mean, it, it would be easy to say, let's look at let free market dictate that. The problem is, is that when persons are going to get hurt as a consequence of a organization and we're going to let market then take effect, people are going to get hurt in the process. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not one when it comes down to a drug or, or device to be the first person to jump on board. I've never been, and I give it quite a bit of time before I ever use it. I remember a few years ago when an antibiotic came out, and sure enough, they have someone coming by. They want to bring lunch. They'll tell you all about their wonderful drug, only to find out, you know, the past few people that we've known in the community have liver failure as a consequence of this one, right? Uh, and that made it through the FDA too, by the way, mm -hmm. right? And that's and so so I think there is some place for some of these rules and, uh, and to go through the trials like you need. Um, but at the same time, you'd have to look at this and say, what is truly needed? How do we streamline this? How do we get drugs to market faster? I mean, why should someone who is who has no chance of life have to be subject to, I'm sorry, you can't have this drug because we haven't quite received the approval process yet, right? So, I mean, so I think there's a place. You just have to look at it and say, look, like, what do we need to do in this time based upon the information that we have before us to make the most educated decision to help the greatest number of people, um, right. you know? Um, uh, that's just where I stand on it. Okay, that's fine. That's why we <laughs> ask the questions. Find out where you stand on it, uh, Charles. Okay. Uh, another point here, crafting tomorrow's education. Uh, just breathe through this a little bit. Your your main thing that I got out of it is you want to refocus the Department of Education uh, on essential skills. Uh, right. Again, for libertarians, especially our anarchist friends, they'll say, A, we don't need a Department of Education. And should an essential skills be left up – the definition of essential skills be left up to the parents to decide what's best for their kids? Absolutely, parents should be able to make that decision. Um, and so so when it comes down um, to the Department of Education, it, you'd have to look at this, I think, on a on – a, look, first let me back up and say I'm a, I'm a, I believe in states, right? So, so I, I'm not – when it comes down to taking care of your kids, you'd go back to the state level and, and more importantly the local level. But at the same time, there are many local levels that necessarily – can't handle or don't have the wherewithal in order to make these decisions. So I think someone has to say, hey, look, this is what the kids need in order to achieve success in society. And yes, parents are the best. But unfortunately, there's many kids that don't have parents or they don't have parents that care, or they may have a parent that has to work two or three jobs in order to put food on the table. So right. it's nice to say it should be left up to the parents, but that's pie in the sky talk because unfortunately in this society, you just don't have that. I mean, mm -hmm. um, so do I think there should be a, a grand education department in Washington, D.C. Uh, that can commands, this is what you need to do? Absolutely not. When I say essential skills, reading, writing, arithmetic, and perhaps social studies, so someone can make an, or a child can make an educated decision of how it is or what it is that they believe in when it comes to our society, right? And in some, and in some cases, that social studies would afford them some moral code, I would imagine. I don't believe in teaching uh, superfluous things to children. Uh, I don't, I think you need to have a, gather a reasonable uh, education so that you can, so that you have the opportunity to compete in society. Right. Okay. Um, um, but that, you know, so that's where yeah. I stand on that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the next one is, uh, immigration. Um, in, in a, maybe a sentence or two, what is your vision of immigration? Is it open borders? Is it restrictive closed borders? Is it somewhere in between? Is it an Ellis Island type of deal? How, how would you generally categorize your, your position on immigration? So, so, I 
having lived in San Antonio, if I had to live in any city in Texas again, it would be San Antonio. I love the Central American Hispanic persons, et cetera, right? Having said that, I think there has to be some law and order when it comes down to it because uh, it's just as it is fair for persons to move across borders and 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 to be able to let economics take their uh, sway as it needs to, I think it's also fair to the American people to make sure that because you have paid for and you pay into your social services, you receive these social services. So I do think there needs to be some means by which that you can control it. Um, call it Ellis Island. You want to make sure the people coming across are not, you know, they're not diseased, they're not criminals, etc. But I do think there needs to be something fair. I think it should be more pragmatic. I think you should say, listen, here's the deal. If you're a state, let's call out and say, what are we going to accept on, on, a, on an annual basis? And what occupations do we need? Uh, and and by doing so, we don't strain the system. It's still fair for the persons who are actually following the law to get into this country. Uh, and so I think it would be a win-win for everyone. I mean, um, I don't think it's necessarily fair where you just where you can charge millions of people across the border uh, on any given year um, and, and strain the system only to then farm people out across the country, particularly the sanctuary cities or sanctuary states, um, which may just simply provide lip service to these the immigrants. I mean, right. uh, you see, and I see on the news all the time, poor New York, poor San Francisco, we're accepting all these people in. Well, you know, what if you're in Laredo, Texas, right? I mean, what are you going to do there? I mean, um, I mean, I, I do think there need, needs to be humanity, right? But there also has to be law. Uh, I do think that we should make sure that immigrants have a place in the United States. Absolutely. They've made this country after all, right? right. But it has to be in a controlled manner so that there's not just total chaos. Okay. Uh, in controlled manner, uh, for example, do you support what's going on in Texas now? Do you support Texas's right to defend its borders, according to Governor Abbott? Is that something you support, or would well, you rather have seen something else uh, I mean, I would, I, I would, I would rather have everyone sat down for a peaceful talk and say, "Listen, this is how we're going to solve the situation." But unfortunately, neither party has has actually done so. I mean, I, I, I don't believe in violence in any way, shape, or form. To be able to put up razor wire to keep people from coming across a desert or across the Rio Grande just seems to be a bit uh, barbaric. But at the same time, you know, when help is asked and help is not provided after X period of time, I understand where he's trying to make a point and make a stand. I feel very sorry for those persons particularly persons that are getting trafficked or they're coming in secondary to cartels, et cetera. You don't want to see that sort of stuff. I mean, that's horrible that this country would even allow something to this degree to go unchecked for such a long period right. of time. And the greatest, what is, you know, what is portrayed as the greatest country on earth, but yet we can't solve a problem that all it would take is a few persons getting together, shaking hands and saying, how do we formulate a solution so that everyone gets taken care of and, 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 and it works out, right? I mean, the idea of, of, of creating a crisis situation is just, it, it's absolutely absurd. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about uh, drug and alcohol. Uh, simple question. Are you uh, for ending the, the war on drugs? Absolutely. I, uh, I, I, look, I'm not, I'm not a, a user of, of uh, illicit drugs, but at the same time, I, I don't think the war on drugs ever worked. I mean, I could walk down the street here and probably get anything that I want right. in, a, in a moment's notice. It doesn't work. Unfortunately, there's a lot of and, – and, and, you know, and, and when it's and – when it's, when it's, 
told to me that, you know, hey, look, we're really not arresting people anymore with marijuana. Well, no, it does affect you. I mean, you have persons that get fired from their jobs or they get uh, they get uh, pigeonholed as being somebody a drug abuser when 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 they may have had a say a hair follicle test, you know, that came right. back two months later. It just I don't think that's fair. I don't. And, and look at now. Now we're doing ketamine for depression. We're doing LSD for you know potential therapeutic means to try to help depression. Right. I mean, so in many cases in the past, this war on drugs actually stifled you know growth of, of the medical industry. I mean, I can't. I do. I do nose. Uh, I do rhinoplasty type nose stuff, and I can't get cocaine anymore, which is one of the best topical medications you can use. And you can't get it because it either costs too much or there's too many rules and regulations. So right. I, I, I personally find it silly. I don't believe that. Uh, I, I think you'd be better served actually treating persons using certain substances as an addiction, a problem, give them help, give them needles, whatever. But basically, you're going to find more good than bad in doing so. And there's countless examples around sure. the world where people have done this. I mean, you know, I, mean, I don't need to yeah. you know, basically say what you already know. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, no, I agree with you. OK, uh, let me just uh, kind of end on this one. Um, transforming healthcare and the medical landscape, which given your profession, I'm assuming it might be your, your wheelhouse here. Um, I didn't know this. You're, you advocate recognizing uh, medical cred- credentials uh, from state to state. I didn't realize. Does that mean that if you're – and licensures, don't get me started on licensure because obviously – libertarians are bore those but let's let's assume you're you're licensed to to practice medicine in new york does that mean you're not allowed to practice medicine in texas not unless you have a license not unless you have a state state since covid and and perhaps it was even prior to but but have begun to recognize license and i want to say it was up to like 36 now states that recognize this but i can understand back in the day when you or a physician in, say, New, uh, New Orleans, and you end up doing harm, and basically you move over to you know Missouri, and next thing you know, you want to open up shop. They're trying to protect people. I get it 100%. But now with technology the way it is, the idea that you can't move around just seems absolutely just silly. Um, and I understand you have to respect, you know, state, uh, that all of the medical communities in various states want to be want to have their place, right? But I find the, I find the idea that you can't move your licensure around, given the need for Allied health professionals, physicians, nurses, PAs, you know, nurse practitioners right. is absolutely – it's silly. I mean you go down to the valley in Texas, for instance. You can hang out a shingle. You could be anybody. People are going to just line up at your door because they don't have enough physicians. I mean that, that's – you know, at least it was when I was back in Texas. Right, right, right. right. So, yeah, yeah. so I mean – so the need is there. I mean there's so much so that uh, there, was a, there was a senator in the state of Louisiana – um, and I don't know the year, it was a few years ago that actually called for, and it passed, for optometrists to do certain procedures because they didn't have ophthalmologists that would be out in the various communities, right? right. Uh, the need's there. We just need to figure out how to make it work for the professionals that want to do this, right? Mm-hmm. So. Okay. Let me throw now a hot question at you in terms of the COVID vaccine. Yes. As a physician. Was the vaccine something that was effective? Uh, yes. So okay. I, I, get, I, I get the libertarian stance saying, oh, no vaccines. And I get it, personal autonomy. But if many of those persons would have seen what we saw when it first came down, they would probably say, speak another tune. So, so when COVID first hit, New Orleans was hit early on. It was a Mardi Gras. Uh, although who knows, maybe it hit before Mardi Gras, but that, you know, a few million people getting together. Um, you 
the number of people that you saw dying from this initially, and you didn't know what was about to hit. I mean, so, so, I mean, we had our Tyvek suits and our gas masks and you just have to go to work. And that's the way it was. Originally you were praying that there was an answer for this virus, right? Mm. Haven't, haven't said that I took the vaccine. I took the vaccine once, not that it's anybody's, uh, in business, but I didn't take it again. Uh, I didn't really see much of a need. Uh, or maybe I did take a booster because you had to based in the state of Louisiana to practice as a physician. But 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 as the virulence has gone down, you see that and people have, have succumbed to COVID and it's become less virulent. You don't necessarily need it anymore. So so would I advocate for taking a COVID vaccine now based upon what I'm seeing? No. But if this thing mutates and it starts killing people hand over fist, I'd have to use common sense and say, listen, I, mom and dad, I'd rather you take this and actually live than, than prove a point and not live because, right? So in many cases, this was a godsend. Um, um, the number of people dying, if you see just the, 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 you know, people say, oh, you shouldn't have done it. Well, all right. So come in and talk to the nurses that are working 12, 16 hour shifts that when they get finished the day, they basically have blue around their face because the gas mask is so tight that they've been wearing or they're in N95, you know, respirator right. mask. And, and they're turning people over. You're taking people from the back. You're throwing them under their stomachs, trying to, trying to aerate their chest, right? When you saw such horrors, if you want to call it that, I think people who would say this would change their mind and, and, and at least understand why this was done early on because you were searching for a solution to a problem. And it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback and say, you know, gee whiz, this mass thing was silly. And yes, we, and maybe we shouldn't have shut down all the businesses and such as it was. But at the same time, you didn't know what was coming. I mean, you know, um, and it's I, so the persons that are not in this industry and did not see the the, the just the overall worn out. Pe- I mean, there are a lot of people that just said, hell with this. I'm going to retire after this because I've just I've just burnt. I mean, right. know, I mean uh, it changed people's attitudes. I mean, look, it's changed nursing. Now you have nursing. I mean, try to find non-traveler nurses if you run a hospital. Good luck, because at the time they needed nurses in various points in the United States. And so these these companies would offer persons pie in the sky money to come work on these shifts on COVID floors. Um, and these these numbers were crazy. Uh, when COVID's over, people are so used to making the money, it's hard to get them back into their local communities because they're used to making a fortune, right? Yeah. So it, it, it really kind of changed medicine forever. So, you know, I respect where people are coming from and they say, look, I abhor vaccinations. I think it's, you know, you shouldn't be, and yes, it's your body. But I was actually on a podcast not too long ago with someone who was a, who's a, a, a vowed socialist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's an infectious disease guys. And, and we were talking about it and he said, you know, and I, we've had the same experience when somebody's about to get intubated who has COVID and they're like, can I have the vaccine now? It's like, listen, I mean, you know, I, I wish you would, but, but, but unfortunately, you know, this is what's about to happen to you. Um, and so, so I, I have a place for libertarians when it comes to that. I mean, um, I understand it's your body. I get it. But if you make that decision not to do that, accept the consequences, Yeah. um, yeah. you know, well, it's also, I think that, that, and I have issue with my fellow libertarians on this because it's one thing to say the government shouldn't stick a needle in your arm against right. your wishes, but it, it sort of got conflated with these people who assumed that all vaccine, like it, it started with the whole vaccines cause autism grift. Right. That's why right. I, that, you know, I have a son with autism. Uh, it, it, the MMR vaccine had nothing to do with that. Right. Um, uh, so to, when you see people grifting off that because it feeds into some QAnon conspiracy, the COVID one, so the MMR thing, I think properly for the most part is back. It's been discredited that it causes uh, autism enough. I think, I think what happened with COVID is 
it's the rapidity, the rapid nature by which this vaccine came out, the right. sort of shady nature. And again, this is all government related that to remove right. liability from the pharmaceuticals. I think all those things, yes, I could see where every libertarian should be railing against that. Right. But the, to your point, the libertarians who are assaulting or assailing the vaccine itself and whether vaccines right. in general are effective. Hey, I, in New York, as you probably know, there were body bags in the uh, in the streets because they they didn't they couldn't yeah. get they couldn't um, get rid of them fast enough, you know. Right. And, and we had, we had, we had tra cooling trailers as morgues. I mean, you'd put yes, them in the back of an eighteen wheeler. You know? Yes, absolutely. And you know, I, I I tend to think that some of these libertarians probably live in states that have popula population densities that are super low. And right. they they didn't see this sort of wave initially, like in in the crowded urban centers, like in New York, maybe New Orleans, Chicago, you know, especially as you were further east, because that's right. it seems to be that's where it came in from. Like, you're right, you didn't know what was happening. So for most of us who are reasonable, you would be like, yeah, maybe there if there is a vaccine, and there's been some, at least minimum level of uh, toxicity testing and things like that nature. We should try it. Like Monday morning quarterback, you're absolutely right. Different story. Uh, and then whether or not it's still an issue, that's a different story as well, right? right. So like you said. Well, I mean, the, yeah, I mean, so so now when it comes down to like the flu vaccine, I would prefer not to take the flu vaccine because, I mean, honestly, we see flu uh, when it's around on a daily basis. I mean, yeah. as an ENT, that's what you see. And I know I build up an immunity to it. And if there's a strain that comes out that's horrid, then of course, all right, let's let's look at the data right. and is it worth is it worth doing at that time? So to say I'm hundred percent anti vax would be would be I'd be I mean I'd be lying yeah. to you. Yeah, you know? I, I always uh, say I'm anti mandate. I'm not anti vax. Yeah, I'm anti mandate. Exactly. Okay. Uh, we're, we're coming up towards the end of our time, Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Charles, I was about to say, I got caught in between. Uh, it's time for the part of the show that I call silly questions. So these are going to be yes. five questions I throw out at you. There's no right or wrong answer. It's just, let's have some fun with it and let the folks, uh, get to know a little bit even more about your personality. So the, yes. the, your most favorite thing to do when you're trying to unwind. Most of the time, uh, I, my wife and I are, well, let's see, favorite thing, unwind, Probably listen to smooth jazz, uh, some nice music at night, have a glass of wine. But I personally like to get on a Vespa and just ride around town and get the wind in my hair. And Oh, okay. Uh, just, okay. <laughs> so smooth jazz on your Vespa. That, that would be there nice. There you go. There you go. Okay. <laughs> uh, the physician or scientist, uh, who do you think uh, is responsible for the greatest discovery in medical history? Uh, that's a God, that's a hard one. Um, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, I see instruments that I think save a whole lot of lives, but the single person, um, that is a hard one. I don't know if I can answer that question because you see so many things that sort of fascinate you. And I don't actually know the names of some of these people that have created some of these medications. I mean, I really don't. I, I don't know if I can honestly answer that one person. Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> you're going for the unsung, you're going for the unsung heroes. Fair enough. Yeah. <clears throat> Fair enough. Uh, and like growing up, like I said, I mentioned earlier, I was a biologist. Like for me, it was Watson and Crick, right. especially Watson, you know, because if you right. read his story in the double helix, I, I, you, you know, we all had our visions, especially as a youngster. I had this vision that scientists were these noble geniuses and, you know, and everything. And Watson basically stumbled into every opportunity <laughs> he had. And I think uh, if I have the story correct in my head, um, he ended up in Crick's lab 
because Crick wanted to ask Watson's sister out on a date. <laughs> Serendipity, right? <laughs> right? So, so the famous Watson and Crick double helix discovery, which a lot of people feel they stole from uh, Rosalind Franklin and Maurice Wilkins and Linus Pauling, they were just the first ones to put it together, right? Uh, right. But regardless, when you read something like, and I recommend anyone who's a science skeptic or a science lover, go ahead and read the double helix. It's not a big book, but it, right. when I was younger, I thought that was always a, a hilarious anecdote of how some of these great <laughs> scientific uh, discoveries come along. All right. Uh, your biggest influence politically or philosophically? You know, I'll, um, hmm, let's think. Philosophically? Probably like so. So the the best class that I've ever so I, went, I was taught by the Jesuits in New Orleans, and the best class <laughs> that I think I, the, the best class that I ever had. I was going to say a fellow sufferer. I was I was taught uh, by the Jesuits in New York. All right. Well, so the best class that I was ever taught was a guy by the name of Jimmy LeBeau or Jimmy LaBeouf, uh, <laughs> uh, and he actually he had an interesting. I guess what made it so interesting was he was a photographer, so he used to take pictures of the Russian ballet. Um, but he actually taught the Communist Manifesto, and so it was Karl Marx. But he didn't teach this because he was trying to teach communism. He taught it of how society changed and how it came about. And to this day, I think that's the best class, particularly philosophical, that I've ever taken because it sh it, it sh pretty much gave you uh, – it was just a picture in time as to why society changed the way it changed at that point in time. And so I, I still remember, I think that's still the best class I've ever taken in high school. Oh, okay. Fair enough. So uh, Karl Marx is, a, is exactly anti-libertarian. I completely uh, No, no I understand. I was going to take Karl Marx as, <laughs> as sort of like a cautionary tale, right? Exactly. Exa well, yes, it teaches you, it teaches you what you don't want to do, so to speak. Right. Right. But, right. Uh, <laughs> no, that's great. Okay. In the tradition of ginger versus Marianne, uh, which New Orleans associated chef do you prefer, Emerald or Paul Prudhomme? Uh, well, Paul's dead. Emerald doesn't. Well, I meant their their kitchens. You know, they're a little different. I mean, Emerald was more of kind of a pizzazzy kind of guy, and Prudhomme had more of a sort of a uh, more of a sort of a Cajun flair to him. Uh, I'd probably say Emerald just because it's more pizzazzed up, so to speak. He tried a little bit more; is a little bit more experimental. You know, if you wanted some trout amadine or something like that, maybe maybe Prudhomme. But if you were looking for something that you you'd have to really kind of like to experience in a, a long dinner, I'd probably go to Emerald. Okay, fair enough. Emerald it is. Okay, and the last one, your favorite movie of all time. If it's playing on TV and you're flipping channels and you come across it, there's no way you're going past it. Which one is that? God, I don't know. That's a tough one. Um, I don't know. Casino Royale. Uh, okay, you know. fair enough. Yeah, yeah. James yeah. Bond movie, right? Okay. Yeah, yep. Casino Royale. Okay. Dr. <laughs> Charles Belay, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us today. We really John, appreciate it. Uh, please let the people know if they want to find out more about your campaign or perhaps make a donation, where where should they go? Sure. It's uh, www.ballet, that's spelled B as in boy, A-L-L-A-Y, 2024.com. And Big John, thank you very, very much for having me on oh, today. Oh, it was, it was a great pleasure. Thank you, for, yes, uh, thank you once again for joining us. And everyone out there, uh, you're listening to The Big Questions with Big John right here uh, on Grumblings Media. You can find us on all the social platforms. Just put in at Grumblings Media. Uh, you could also find us on YouTube, Rumble, Apple, Spotify, Pandora, everywhere podcasts can be found. Until next time, peace, everyone.